State attorneys general are responsible for protecting the public and can intervene by means of lawsuits or negotiation when public health is threatened. The 1998 Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement, which involved 46 attorneys general, remains the largest legal settlement ever executed in the United States, and it led to substantially reduced smoking rates. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Cheryl Hilton, Dean of the New York University College of Global Public Health. Dr. Hilton has written a perspective article about lessons from the Master Settlement Agreement for addressing other public health problems. Dr. Hilton, you write in your article that attorneys general may be viewed as the actors of last resort when an industry with substantial legislative influence is seen to be harming the public. So why was the Master Settlement Agreement ultimately the most effective strategy for addressing tobacco use in the United States? Well, it's a great question, Steve. And of course, one could argue that it wasn't the most effective strategy, but it was the one that was a viable strategy. And so after an attempt to have a successful MSA, which was actually initially led by the Attorney General of Mississippi, that transformed into a congressional effort and famously ended with the tobacco industry in a public press conference saying that the bill had become a pork barrel nightmare and that they were withdrawing from it. And then sort of as the phoenix out of the ashes came the second master settlement agreement attempt, and that one was successful. And it is, I think, broadly viewed as having had mixed success, but I also think it was viewed very broadly at the time as one of the only vehicles to interject some level of control over the tobacco industry in the absence of federal regulation. Are there other examples of cases where AGs from multiple states have successfully addressed public health problems this way? There are some examples. One that stands out is the effort to stop in its tracks the mixing of caffeine with alcohol, which became an extremely popular form of drink among young people. And a coalition of AGs threatened legal action and were able to settle out of court to change the trajectory of that particular practice. There are other such efforts that are underway right now, which we'll talk about maybe later in this discussion with respect to environmental health and fossil fuels, efforts that are aimed not only at the industry itself, but also the lackluster response the government is currently undertaking with respect to the Environmental Protection Agency's legal framework, which could be evoked but is not being. You say in your article that 41 AGs are now suing or are poised to sue companies that manufacture, distribute, and sell opioids. What's the current state of those cases? And do you think that the outcome of those cases is going to affect potential action against other companies, other industries going forward? Well, it's hard to predict the action with respect to this grouping of cases, which includes state's attorneys general, and then separately, a large coalition of, not really coalition, but a large number of city and localities that have band together and are engaging in negotiations in the federal court within Ohio in an effort to settle over 400 cases. A blow was recently dealt to that, a significant one, which I think is a good turn of events, in that now six new AGs have actually filed suits, and five of the six are Republicans. And essentially, it has become clear in the negotiations, even though they are undertaken with a shroud of secrecy, that the opioid industry has begun to wonder whether it shouldn't just take its chances in court. And they're going to get their chance in court because I think a group of state AGs are going to essentially peel off from this larger effort and they're going to pursue the court case. Notably, I think it was Massachusetts, 
their most recent filing actually names executives as guilty parties, and that's a first. So that kind of also turns up the heat. Where it will ultimately go and how the courts will interpret it is not predictable, but it is very analogous to the tobacco issue. There are more analogies than non-analogies, including the size of the industry. It's now $22 billion in the U.S., and the tobacco industry is $39 billion. So I think part of the issue is the AGs understand there's a great deal of money there. There's an enormous public health problem in the country, and part of the problem can be solved by wrestling away what they would view as ill-gotten gains from this industry. And of course, if something like this succeeds, it's conceivable that something similar could happen with respect to youth alcohol use. And at some point in the future, something similar could happen with respect to the gun industry. We're a long way away on the gun industry for some very particular reasons having to do with the protections they currently have through federal legislation. But you could imagine a day when, as you have, I think, called for in one of your own editorials, a social norms change happens that's sufficient to change the calculus that politicians have with respect to protecting the gun industry. And then if that were to happen, a domino effect could occur. So you mentioned earlier environmental issues. And in your article, you talk about state-level actions against ExxonMobil. Could those cases have a meaningful effect on efforts to hold companies accountable for climate change? Well, they can. There are two types of cases, and probably a sophisticated lawyer would tell you there are 10, and I'm not a lawyer. But to me, I break them down into the cases that are against the corporation itself and are multi-state AG cases. And there's one right now, and that is the one that involves New York and Massachusetts, both states that are sufficiently well-heeled to carry it to its logical extension. And then there are cases that are within the states about a particular state-level issue, their beaches, their air, their whatever. And then, of course, there's a third category, and those are cases that are against the U.S. government for failure to implement its own policies, uh, having regulations that it elects not to enforce. I think the jury is out, literally, not literally, but soon will be, in terms of what will happen with the most important case. And I think the most important case is the Massachusetts, New York case. The Virgin Islands withdrew not long ago from the case, I think because they don't have the ability to do their piece of it. You have to be a well-heeled attorney general office to be able to um, mount the legal wherewithal, both in terms of your own legal team, but being able to buy expert counsel outside of the AG's office. That case is a very direct and very powerful case. And it alleges, as I think you know, and many of your listeners may know, that the industry, particularly Exxon, has known for decades and in fact did much of the key research on global climate change, particularly the temperature of the seas, and then chose to follow a path of covering that up and in fact mounting a PR campaign to argue that this was not in fact happening, despite knowing for certain that it was. And that's the kind of case that appeals to a fiery AG who wants to fight for the public interest. And New York has a particularly powerful law related to defrauding investors, the Martin Act. And this is one of the bases of the New York state claim. So if that were to go forward, it could begin to look like the tobacco industry cases looked. If they lost in one state, one AG has told me they would have been bankrupt, which is why they were so motivated to settle. Finally, what do you see as the most important outcome of these kinds of cases? Is it most important for states to get money from settlements so they can address public health harms? or increased regulations on industry, 
or a warning to other companies that may be harming public health that they should change their ways? I think it's a range of things, and I think it depends very much on the particular problem that you're trying to address. And also, as I made clear in the perspectives piece, the strength of the legal argument against the industry, the stronger the argument, the higher the probability of a mass settlement or a day in court that does not go their way. To me, the most important thing is that whatever strategies ought to be employed to reduce the magnitude of the impact of the particular industry on the health of the public should be employed. Certainly one that in the tobacco settlement was extraordinarily powerful and more so than anyone had predicted, I believe, was mass public education, where the mass youth public education known as the Truth Campaign that was conducted under the foundation created out of the master settlement with tobacco sharply dropped youth smoking in America. It was not 100% of the reason, it was 25% of the reason, but it saved many, many lives, both of young people as well as of adults. Similar types of public education campaigns expertly executed with no government interference whatsoever with respect to the type of uh, hard-hitting creative that is used and frankly anti-corporate type of advertising when warranted. That type of education can have an extraordinarily strong social norms impact. And I would imagine, for example, both with opioids as well as with alcohol and certainly without question with respect to guns, that type of public education could really begin to change the entire policy and legislative landscape. So really, just to return to the key points, let's take opioids as an example. There's a desperate need for money for treatment. There's a desperate need to recompense areas of the country that have been hardest hit and have had you know, enormous economic damages to their state. There is a desperate need for public education. There's a desperate need for law enforcement intervention to make, be certain that the practices that are still ongoing are stopped essentially in their tracks. And there's a desperate need for public education. So people understand it only takes eight days on opioids to have an addiction risk. And that about 13% of people who take opioids over a few weeks end up dependent slash addicted on opioids. So the American public has no idea when they go into the dentist and walk out with two weeks of Percocet, what they're potentially facing. Thank you, Dr. Hilton. 